you're aware of the uh, the news and the incredible damage that the fires are doing in California these days. According to the Los Angeles Times, as a wildfire in L.A. County flamed out of control not too long ago, officials ordered a mandatory evacuation of thousands of homes. But there were a pair of residents that defied the order. These are two individuals who underestimated this fire, said a sheriff's department spokesman. The couple figured they could just jump into their hot tub if the flames got too close. True story. But the advancing 80 to 100 foot flames completely overwhelmed them and their hot tub. A rescue helicopter flew them to a hospital burn unit for treatment. Their condition is unknown. I'm pretty sure they're talking about their physical condition. Because I think I could take a stab at their mental, psychological condition. Um, You probably could as well. What were they thinking? The immediate history of the last couple of weeks going on all around them, thousands of homes consumed by fire, quite likely friends and, and probably neighbors who had lost their homes. They receive a mandatory evacuation order and they think they can jump in their hot tub and be okay. What do you think? Simply defies reason. And personally, I think it registers pretty high on the stupid scale. Well, this morning, as we prepare to come to the table of our Lord, I want to take you to a familiar text in Scripture where I am suspicious that when it was spoken, there was a similar sense of disbelief, a sense of, you have got to be kidding, perhaps a sense of, are you just a little bit crazy here? But before we go there, I need for you to just go with me back to the Old Testament and let's just for a few minutes recall some of the significant events that were formative in the history of the people of Israel. And, and you, you will know these things. Just think out loud with me here. First two chapters of Genesis, creation account, right? Main character. Who's the main character in the creation account? Safe to say it's God, the God of the Israelite people. And, and we're told in the creation account that God created. How did God create? Out of nothing. The theologians would call that ex nihilo, out of nothing. Ever done that? Ever create anything out of nothing? I mean, besides arguments that happen between you and your spouse. I I was thinking more in terms of, you know, with our hands and designing. Okay, God, the main character in creation, has brought all of life into existence out of nothing. The the writer tells us that he spoke it into existence. Okay, jump ahead. Book of Exodus records the exodus of the people of Israel from Egypt. They had been enslaved there for 400 years. How did the exodus happen? You recall what finally pushed the Pharaoh over the edge? I don't hear anybody speaking up. Plagues, plagues. 
death of the firstborn in particular. And, and who was responsible for the plagues? Okay, good. Just making sure that we knew that. So they left Egypt, probably a million plus in number, and they came to the Red Sea. The Egyptian army is screaming down on them because Pharaoh has once again had a change of mind. They're just in a bit of a jam here. And uh, what happened next? You know the story. What happened? Part of the waters. Something that happens every day, right? No big deal. Part of the waters. Who parted the waters? God parted the waters. Okay. Oh, and what happened to the Egyptian army? Who drowned the Egyptian army? Okay, okay. You're with me so far. They came to Mount Sinai. Just a quick, you know, overview of the significant things in, in their history. Came to Mount Sinai where Moses received the law from God and gave it to the people. Now, when the people were at the base of the mountain, what did they see? What did they hear? Do you remember? Fire, thunder, clouds. And they were pretty excited about going up that mountain, weren't they? Not at all. Terrified. Who was on that mountain? Okay, good, good. So then they had to spend, as it turns out, 40 extra years in the wilderness before they could enter the promised land. Why was that? Do you remember? Disobedience to God's prayer. They didn't trust. They didn't obey. And what had to happen before they could enter the promised land? Whole generation died in the desert. Now, who was responsible for that edict and who wouldn't let them go in until that generation had died? Good. Okay, now, time comes to enter the promised land, and they are standing at the edge of the Jordan River. It just happens to be flood season, and the river is just brimming over. How do they get across the Jordan River? It dried up. Now, there's another everyday event. They saw that happen a lot. Have you ever wondered, this is just one of those ridiculous thoughts that floats into my head from time to time. The, the, the wording of the scripture there in that account tells us that the waters piled up and they ceased to flow downstream. I wonder what the folks downstream thought. Isn't that weird? Who did that? Okay. Good, good, good. Oh, and then... You remember they got across that dry riverbed into the land and they faced a large city named Jericho full of a lot of unfriendly people. What happened there? Walls came tumbling down in a rather conventional manner of battle for that day, don't you think? Who was responsible for that? Okay, fast forward with me few hundred years to about 722 B.C. It's during a time in Israelite history called the Divided Kingdoms. Northern Kingdom, Southern Kingdom. Ten to the north, two to the south. The Northern Kingdom, the ten tribes in the north, are attacked by a world power called Assyria. What happened? Conquered. Destroyed. Yes. Many people taken away. Probably more just killed. 
About 150 years later, southern kingdom, attacked by another world power, Babylon. What happened? Same thing. Yeah. A lot of people taken into exile. About 80 to 100 years later, we have two individuals whose names we have read in the Old Testament, Ezra and Nehemiah, and they are responsible for taking a small entourage of people back to their homeland under the watchful eye of the Babylonians, and they rebuild the wall and the city and the temple. And that is the end of Old Testament history. Following that, there are 400 years of silence. We have no record of God's interaction with His people. It ends with His people being banished to Assyria and to Babylon and a small group of folks living back in the Jerusalem area, if you will. 400 years of silence. And we do know from his history and archaeology that during those 400 years, the Israelites were dominated again and again and again by foreign powers. Over and over and over, they have been oppressed people during this 400-year period. Ten of the 12 original tribes, the northern kingdom, gone. Never to be heard of again. Still haven't been found. Okay. You did real well. Speculate with me here. Based upon this quick history review, who is God to the small group of people that remain in Israel? Who is God? What do they think of God? What are their perceptions of God? Speculation. What do you think? Does miracles, certainly powerful. What else? He's been silent. Punishment. Maybe he's mad. Okay. So, fast forward just a little bit further to the life of Jesus. And here comes what I think is an incredible statement that I think probably elicited from those who were following Jesus the same kind of response that we might have had to the boneheads who thought that their hot tub would save them from the fire. Are you kidding? You see... Luke records for us that the disciples came to Jesus one day and they said, Master, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples to pray. And Jesus, in response to his very Jewish disciples, Jewish disciples that knew all of that history that we just reminded ourselves of and a whole lot more, Jewish disciples who were keenly aware of the power and the position of Yahweh, whose name they would never speak in public because it was far too holy. And Yahweh was far too powerful to trifle with. They'd seen that happen many times in their history. And they feared even the possibility of mistakenly misusing his name and suffering the consequences of that. 
And it was to those Jews who knew all of that and felt all of that and had all of that emotion bundled up inside of them that Jesus says to them, say, Father, it's lost on us. Matthew records it as Jesus saying to his followers, this is how you should pray, our Father. Say, Father. And this is one of those points, I think, in Scripture where the written word just cannot possibly catch everything that is going on in that situation. That gasping noise that you hear are the disciples, the Jewish disciples all going, there is no way that you refer to Yahweh. Far too intimate, far too personal, far too close. Sounds a little dangerous. And this is where their thinking is, are you kidding? In fact, Jesus, are you a little nuts here? This is, this is Yahweh of Mount Sinai that we're talking about. Can't you just see the looks that they exchange with one another? Did, did he really just say that? Does he have any idea how dangerous that is? And in the minds of those disciples, this invitation to pray would have been completely outrageous. Completely outrageous. You see, the idea that Yahweh could be a father to his children was inconceivable to the Jew. Just getting way too close and way too intimate with the all-powerful God of their people's history. With the one who demanded obedience and trashed your life if you didn't obey. Call him Father? I don't think so. There is just no way that they were easily going to buy into that. Let's stand this morning and and read our text together. I don't know if we could find a better text that prepares us to come to this table this morning and celebrate. Let's read together, shall we? Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Wait a minute. The word condemnation, what's that about? Punishment to be condemned. And Paul says there is some condemnation, right? There is partial condemnation. What's he say? No No condemnation. Do you think he means no condemnation? Okay, good. Let's keep reading. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do, because it was weakened by the sinful nature, God did by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful humanity to be a sin offering. And so, He condemned sin in human flesh 
in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the sinful nature, but according to the spirit. Those who live according to the sinful nature have their minds set on what that nature desires. But those who live in accordance with the spirit have their minds set on what the spirit desires. The mind controlled by the sinful nature is death, but the mind controlled by the spirit is life and peace. The sinful mind is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those controlled by the sinful nature cannot please God. You, however, are not controlled by the sinful nature, but are in the spirit. If indeed the spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, then even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the spirit gives life because of righteousness. And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his spirit who lives in you. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation, but it is not to the sinful nature to live according to it. For if you live according to the sinful nature, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. For those who are led by the spirit of God are the children of God. The spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you receive brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him, we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. My brothers and sisters, this is the glorious truth of God's word. Amen. Be seated. Let me read for you again just verse 15 of this amazing text. Paul says this, For you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption. And by that spirit, we cry, Abba, Father. All right, turn to your neighbor and ask him this question. What fear is Paul talking about? What fear that we didn't receive again, a spirit of fear? What's the fear that he's talking about? Go ahead, ask your neighbor. See if they know.
15, verse 15. All right, what do you think? What's the fear that Paul is talking about? Say again. Did you say something, Roger? Say it again. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it goes right back to that first verse. There is, therefore, now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Paul is saying that for those who are in Christ, there is no fear of condemnation. Condemnation, I think, is often resident in the heart of humanity. There is, for so many people, that sense of, wow, if there is a God, I wonder if I'm measuring up. Guess what? You're not. Don't wonder any longer. Nobody does. But the good news, as Paul weaves it so masterfully through this text, is that that God, looking down upon a lost humanity, recognized and knew from before the foundations of the world that the law was not going to get anybody right standing before God. The law was not going to, to cause anyone to stand perfect and innocent before a holy God and His standard. And yet, mystery of mysteries is that God... In His love, sent His Son to take on the sins of humanity so that humanity might be called back into the relationship for which they were created. Now, I know that this is old news for many of us, but I think we should be a little more excited about it. Do you hear what Paul's saying? Without Jesus, we're lost. And with Jesus, we have suddenly found ourselves in this amazing relationship as children of none other than Yahweh. Children of the God of Mount Sinai. Children of the God of who created everything that there is, children of the God who holds all life in His hands. Paul says those who have committed themselves to following after Christ, those who have surrendered themselves to Christ Jesus and have fallen upon the grace of God for salvation that comes through Christ, Those folks need not fear God because they have been adopted into what kind of a relationship? Have you been listening? Father to children. Yes. You're not nearly amazed enough about this. Whoa. Is it because you're not as sinful as I am? I know that's not true. Oh, my goodness. My friends, we, we come to this table this morning, and it's familiar. We do this on a monthly basis. And yet, my prayer is always that the familiarity of this table will not 
numb us to the truth that it represents and reminds us of. Father-child relationship made possible through the Son, Jesus, so that we could become heirs to the Father, co-heirs with Christ. As Paul told the Ephesians, he's, he's blessed us in the spiritual realm with every blessing in Christ. So I have another question for you this morning as, as you hear what is probably this very familiar truth. Given your personal history, and I don't know what that is, but given your personal history, who is God to you? Who is God to you? What comes to mind when you think of God? Jesus was was suggesting that his disciples begin to think in a whole new way about Yahweh. Talk about a sea change or, or, a, or a paradigm shift. Say, Father. Call him Father. Call him Father. Begin to think of him as Father. I wonder, what does the image of Father do for you? Some, it's it's an easy jump. Images of a good Father. For some, not as easy. A harsh Father. Negligent Father. For some, perhaps, just a downright evil Father. I want to suggest to you this morning... That regardless of what you bring to the table in terms of that image of Father, I want to suggest to you that Jesus knew something that His disciples did not. Jesus knew an intimacy and a warmth and a tenderness of relationship with His Father that He was saying to them, this can be yours. It's an invitation to intimacy, the likes of which none of us will ever experience outside of that relationship. To surrender our lives, Scripture calls it repentance. That we would come to a point of repenting of trying to live life on our own because that's not what we were created for. That we would repent of living a life that tells God to take a hike because that's certainly not the place that He deserves in our lives. We would be a people who would come to that point of repentance and receive the loving forgiveness of God made available through Jesus' death on the cross. Did you hear the story of the prodigal read for us earlier? Jesus told the story. Jesus told the story. It's okay, Lane. We don't mind it at all. Mom's concerned about it, but we're not. (laughs) Jesus told the story. 
Who characterized God as the father in the story? Jesus did. If Jesus characterized the father in that way, that gives us permission to begin to to think and understand and perhaps explore a relationship with God as our father. Maybe in ways that we never have before. Paul's term, Abba. It was as intimate as it got in the Aramaic. Abba. Our equivalent would be Daddy. When was the last time you came before the God of the universe and said, Oh, Daddy, I am so glad to be your child. I am so thankful for who you are. I am so amazed at who you are. I am so thankful for who you are and for what you've done in my life. Daddy, you are the best. You are all I could ever want and need. At least, Daddy, I know that in my head. May you and your grace begin to help me grasp that in my life and my heart. Is there almost a sense of of uncomfortableness when you think of that kind of intimacy with God? Just kind of go, whoa, I'm not sure I'm there. I'm not sure I'm there either. But I'm pretty sure that that's the invitation that Jesus was calling his disciples to and he's calling us to. Call him Father. Say Father. Abba. Daddy. That... There's a, there's a tenderness and a, and a vulnerability that, that most of us probably do not think of when we think of God. But I think that is the tenderness and the love and the patience and the longing that God demonstrates towards those who are His children. I'm pretty sure that I have read this story, if not to all of you, to some of you before, I think of this story every time I think of the fatherhood of God. Larry Crabb refers to it in his book called Connecting. It says, A friend of mine was raised in an angry family. Mealtimes were either silent or sarcastically noisy. Down the street was an old-fashioned house with a big porch where a happy family lived. My friend told me that when he was about ten years old, he began excusing himself from his dinner table as soon as he could without being yelled at and walking to the old-fashioned house down the street. If he arrived during dinner time, he would crawl under the porch and just sit there listening to the sounds of laughter. And when he told me this story, I asked him to imagine what it would have been like if the father in the house somehow knew that he was hiding out there under the porch and sent his son to invite him in. And then I asked him to envision what it would have meant to him to accept the invitation to sit at the table, to accidentally spill his glass of water, and hear the father roar with delight. Get him more water. Get him a dry shirt. I want him to enjoy the meal. This son of mine who was lost. Some translations say dead. Good as dead. This son of mine, this daughter of mine who was dead has come alive, has come back home. 
There is nothing more disrespectful that that son could have done in that Middle Eastern culture than to do what he did. To demand the inheritance of his father while he was living, said to his father, I wish you were dead. And then took it and squandered it. Not only squandered the money, but squandered his father's reputation. And notice what the father doesn't do when the son comes back. His speech, his repentance is all ready, and father just cuts him off. Let's throw a party. My son has come home. The one who was lost, the one who was dead. Oh, sure, that father just probably could have had a litany of things to say to the kid. Oh, you were pretty disrespectful. Like, what did you do? You did what with the money? You know, can you just imagine? Those, I think, are some of the images that we bring in our, our relationship with God. And my brothers and sisters, the table sits here this morning to remind those who are children of God, there is no condemnation. There is nothing to fear from your Heavenly Father. If you are here today and you're someone who who can't say for sure that you have a relationship with God, that He is your Heavenly Father, that Christ Jesus is your brother and your Savior, please don't leave today without finding out how that can be true for you. Most important decision of your life to surrender yourself into the loving care of one who will be a father like you have never experienced. And so, we come and we gather at this table. This table of celebration. This table of reminder. You know what I I like about Matthew's record of the, the prayer? Is he said, pray our Father. I'm sure He's my Father. And He's your Father. But He's our Father. I think it's an encouragement to us to remember that we're coming to a God who has a lot of kids. A Father who has a lot of kids and has a lot of good stored up for His kids. And I think that there is wonderful encouragement in knowing that He is your Father and your Father and your Father. So when there are times when I am down and I am discouraged and and I am struggling with doubts and I am wondering, I can be encouraged by my brothers and my sisters about the loving faithfulness of our Father. And that's in part what we do here at the table. We come to this table and we are reminded of what Christ Jesus has done for us so that we might become the children of Yahweh. Scripture tells us that Jesus took the bread and He broke it and He said, this is my body given for you. Do this often in remembrance of me. What Jesus didn't say to them that night, but we know it's true. This is my body given 
so that you can become children of my Father. Awesome truth. And the cup. Took the cup. This cup represents my blood. The new covenant in my blood. Forgiveness of sins. Brothers and sisters, this is always a feast. And the invitation to come to this table is always open. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ and desire to live for His glory and His praise, come and celebrate with your brothers and sisters at this table today. If you've never taken communion with us at Applewood, it's very simple. I've asked Diane if she would come and serve with me this morning. She'll stand at this end and I'll stand at this end. And you just come as you're ready. Tear off a piece of the bread. Dip it into the cup and celebrate the goodness and the grace of our God. Come. Celebrate the feast of the people of God as you are ready.